0: Hello and welcome to the Answers for Cancers podcast. I'm your host Anne-Marie Fay and I'm Michelle Matthews. Together with some of Ireland's leading experts we want to unravel what it truly means to have cancer. From consultant diagnosis to treatment plans, from managing your symptoms to supports available, we have it covered. So whether you're a nurse working in oncology or have been personally affected by cancer, this podcast is for you. Dr. Maher qualified from the Royal College of Surgeons and completed his radiation oncology treatment in St. Luke's Hospital in Dublin. He established the first private radiotherapy centre in Ireland in 1995, when he joined the Matter Private Hospital. Dr. Maher is a leader in the field of prostate seed implantation and established the first programme of its kind in Ireland. In 2010, Dr. Maher was appointed as the chairman of Cancer Centre at the Matter Private and has oversight of the provision of the Cancer Centre throughout the hospital. Dr. Meyer's vision for the Cancer Centre is to provide personalised cancer care to patients living with a cancer diagnosis whilst offering the most recent treatments and technology to ensure the best possible outcome. He joins us today to discuss radiotherapy for prostate cancer, including brachytherapy, external beam and radium-223. It's very clear from our conversation how compassionate Michael is to his patients. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us on our Instagram at The Answers for Cancers Podcast or alternatively, please email us at the answers for cancers Podcast at gmail.com and we'd really appreciate it if you can like and subscribe to our podcast, it lets people know we're here. So good morning, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks Emilian, for coming to speak to us today. Um, we're gonna to talk a little bit today about radiotherapy and prostate cancer, which is your speciality. We might start by just talking a little bit about what prostate cancer is, um, just to start off, to give us a background.
1: Great, thanks very much. I think I should start first by commending uh, Anne Marie and Michelle, wonderful oncology nurses, for putting this podcast together, which brings um, cancer care um, and all aspects of cancer management um, to the public in nice, easy to understand language.
0: Thank you, thanks a million.
1: So, prostate cancer is a very, very common disease, and Uh, people obviously would be very disturbed and apprehensive once they get a diagnosis of prostate cancer. But not all prostate cancers are the same. Uh, So prostate cancers are a variety of diseases, um, a bit like nurses. We have a variety of nurses. You have community nurses. You have um, diabetic nurses. You have respiratory nurses. You have oncology nurses. So prostate cancers... Uh, kind of a a vast um, similar sort of array of possibilities and we medics speak in terms of uh, low-grade prostate cancers and high-grade prostate cancers and then you've got intermediate-grade prostate cancers so the important um, parameters in establishing where a patient is in that spectrum of possibilities are, are three things really the the psa level that's a blood test which uh, is a little protein that the prostate gland uh, spits out if you like and uh, a high psa can be associated with a prostate cancer it doesn't mean that everyone with a high psa has a prostate cancer because the psa can go up for other reasons such as benign hypertrophy which is just natural enlargement of the prostate gland as we age It can go up in infection or inflammation. So a high PSA doesn't necessarily mean a patient has a prostate cancer. But if it is elevated, it is enough to make uh, the medics um, wonder if they do have a prostate cancer. And that often prompts the next test, which would be an MRI of the prostate. An MRI of prostate has become a very sophisticated uh, investigation now where the radiologist is able to declare with a certain degree of uh, confidence whether the prostate gland that they're looking at on the MRI images harbors a prostate cancer. And not only that, if they do feel there is a prostate cancer, they're able to impart to us their suspicion whether this is very angry disease or whether this is more uh, low-grade disease that's going to follow an indolent course. The next step in the biopsy, biopsy uh, the next step in the diagnostic process is, is the uh, prostate biopsy. And when the prostate biopsies are taken, generally, um, it's it's uh, harb- it's harvesting twelve, approximately twelve, individual samples out of the prostate gland, and they are all assessed down in the lab- laboratory uh, by the pathologist. So these samples are sliced and diced. And prepared out on glass slides and the pathologist uh, looks down the microscope at these and their job is number one to tell us if there is a prostate cancer within these biopsies and then their second task if they do see a prostate cancer their second task is to convey to us in their report what the likely behavior of this uh, prostate cancer is they impart that information through the medium of the Gleason score and the higher the Gleason score the nastier the prostate cancer. Generally speaking, uh, Gleason scores run from approximately 5 to 6 up to 7, 8, 9, and 10. So a Gleason score with 6 or less is regarded as low-grade prostate cancer. So if a patient has a prostate cancer diagnosis and it's Gleason 6, their MRI has not shown anything major, untoward, and their PSA is in single digits, that is de facto a a slow-growing disease and wouldn't necessarily merit uh, an intervention. So that patient could be safely watched and monitored over time with repeat PSA tests, maybe repeat MRI examinations, and possibly repeat biopsies at intervals. And if that disease is unchanged over years, Then the patient might never uh, have to have to access a treatment on the other hand if the psa is a little higher has moved into uh, double digits their mri has shown some um, distinct abnormality and their gleason score is a little bit higher um, then that's a prostate cancer that has evolved from a low-grade situation into something now that's a bit busier and would merit treatment, and the treatments uh, generally are divided into surgical treatments or radiation treatments. Naturally, if you look on Google and you look up prostate cancer treatments, you're going to come across other modalities such as high foo and cryotherapy and nano knife and uh, so forth. But but none of those would have the same track record as uh, surgery or radiation so both surgery and radiation have been around for many decades and have undergone significant innovations over time Um, and they remain the mainstays of treatment for prostate cancer so when a patient has intermediate risk disease so that's gleason 7 uh, with a psa in double digits and 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 an mri that maybe shows some abnormality we would regard that as a locally confined disease. And locally confined disease is the medical shorthand for disease that we believe has not spread beyond the prostate gland itself. So the patient may have had other scans, such as a bone scan and CT scans of their chest and their abdomen and, and pelvis, and there's no evidence of disease beyond the confines of the prostate gland itself. But nevertheless, intermediate risk disease would merit treatment, assuming the patient is clinically well and doesn't have other issues like a dicky heart uh, and so forth that would preclude them from having definitive treatment. Because intermediate risk disease, if it's left untreated, would progress over time into even busier disease and and become um, high-grade prostate cancer, which would require more aggressive treatment. So we'll just talk about intermediate risk disease for a minute. Intermediate risk disease. Then just to recap is a Gleason score of three plus four equals seven or four plus three equals seven. They're in fact, different diseases, four plus three being uh, plus seven, four plus three equals seven, being a little busier than three plus four equals seven. And the treatment possibilities for intermediate risk disease are surgery and radiation. So a patient could have surgery. And I am not a surgeon, but generally speaking, surgery now would be carried out uh, using a robotic technique where the surgeon puts in a number of probes into the abdomen and is able to extract the prostate gland uh, through these small incisions and the patient is able to leave hospital after two days. So that sounds very attractive, but surgery has its own uh, risks which uh, a surgeon might um, might need to discuss with the patient in advance of that treatment. For my part, I, if I was treating an intermediate-risk uh, prostate cancer patient and I'm talking about radiation treatment, I would be talking about either external beam radiotherapy or brachytherapy. And brachytherapy for Gleason 3 plus 4 equals 7 disease would be a radioactive seed implant. We'll we'll talk about external beam in the first instance. So external beam radiotherapy is precise radiation treatment delivered to the prostate through a variety of beams uh, delivered on a machine called a linear accelerator. And the patient generally has to attend on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and would need to come for four consecutive weeks, a total of 20 treatments. In the past, that used to be 37 treatments, but 20 is the new 37. So we know from all the various studies and trials that were done that we can obtain the same outcome with 20 visits as we used to obtain with 37 attendances. Now, there's a good bit of planning uh, involved in external beam radiation because it has to be delivered with absolute precision. And the reason it has to be delivered with absolute precision is because the prostate is wedged up between the rectum behind and the bladder that's sitting down on top of it in front. So we need to be able to deliver sufficient radiation that will eradicate the prostate cancer in the prostate itself without impinging on the way the bladder and the bowel are going to behave in the months and years after treatment is complete. So that takes a lot of planning and precision. And uh, so the first exercise... Um, that will be done is to uh, do a planning CT scan. So that's just like a regular CT scanner uh, and that will be in every radiotherapy department and the patient is uh, made to lie down flat on their back on the CT scanner. The radiographers will put little uh, plastic markers, excuse me, plastic markers on the skin um, and the pelvis will be scanned. Now the the pelvis, that that scan of the pelvis will generate a whole lot of images like slices of bread in a sliced pan. Uh, and then we, the radiation oncologists, uh, use those images to design the treatment. So we would design uh, a treatment that's going to be uh, delivered through a number of different radiation fields from a machine that can circle, circle around the treatment couch 360 degrees and the machine can be stopped at any point in that 360-degree excursion. So you can direct radiation beams from various different angles, and you can make sure that the beam is targeted to the prostate and that the radiation delivered to the bladder and the rectum is minimized. So it's a daily treatment delivered as an outpatient. Um, So there's no cutting involved. There's no blood spilt. It's just like having an x-ray. There is a little bit of bowel preparation and a little bit of bladder preparation in advance of each daily treatment, but um, but the patient is never in hospital. So um, it, that's very attractive from that perspective. There are no catheters, no tubes involved. There's no risk, practically zero risk of incontinence. That's not to say that patients don't get side effects. As they progress through treatment, we would expect them to get side effects. And the side effects we'd expect would be uh, the bladder to get a little bit busier as the treatment progresses. They may get an element of fatigue, the bowel might become a little bit busier, a little bit looser and, and that's all to be expected and becomes more obvious and pronounced as the patient um, gets progresses through the treatment. But when they come out the other side all of those symptoms should gradually dissipate away over a couple of weeks. So that's external beam radiation, very effective treatment Uh, for intermediate risk prostate cancer and uh, has been utilized for for decades. Uh, The other um, alternative treatment uh, for intermediate risk disease um, is brachytherapy or a radioactive seed implant and that's even uh, quicker and slicker. So what happens with a radioactive seed implant is the patient is admitted into the hospital and under a general anesthetic, a number of tiny little radioactive seeds are introduced and implanted into the prostate gland itself. So in contrast to external beam radiation, where you have the radiation source positioned a meter outside the patient's body and you're irradiating the prostate From outside in with a seed implant you're putting the radiation actually into the prostate gland itself and this is done using ultrasound control so the patient um, is anesthetized and I introduce a an ultrasound probe into the patient's rectum and that allows me to visualize the prostate from top to bottom and it allows me to generate a radiation plan with the physicist who's with me in uh, the theater and also with me is the consultant radiologist. So we we would look at the patient's uh, MRI. We would review all of the um, pathology, the biopsy reports. We would generate a radiation plan that uh, dictates the spatial distribution of the seeds within the prostate itself. Uh, The seeds are loaded in theater into little needles and then using the ultrasound control, I position the seeds into the um, positions that we have designed on the, on the radiation plan. Now the patient is catheterized when they're asleep. So I put a little uh, catheter, a little tube up through the penis and uh, that settles in the bladder. And the patient is asleep, so they don't feel that catheter going in. But when they come out of their slumber after the procedure is complete the catheter will be in place but the needles uh, that I use to introduce those seeds are absolutely tiny they're like acupuncture needles. Uh, the seeds are tiny and the seeds are distributed in, into the prostate gland itself in a predefined spatial distribution such that the radiation dose that they generate encircles the prostate But ensures that the radiation dose reaching the rectum behind is absolutely minimal. And the radiation dose reaching the bladder is also minimal. But there is a little channel that runs through the prostate called the urethra. So the urethra uh, ferries urine that gathers in the bladder down through the prostate like a little pipe and um, continues on out through the penis. Obviously, the urethra will get a little radiation treatment, but by the judicious placement of the seeds in a particular spatial distribution within the prostate, I can control the dose that gets to the urethra. But the dose that gets to the urethra is important because it will impact on the side effects that the patient might get in the months following their seed implant so what we'd expect is that the urethra would get a little irritated and inflamed in the months that follow a seed implant and and that inflammation and irritation is reflected by a busier bladder so getting up a little more often at night having more daytime frequency having a sense of urgency to pee maybe having a little bit of stinging as you piddle symptoms that are uh, similar to infection but it's not an infection It's just a sterile irritation of this urethral tissue. But remember, the seeds are radioactive. So the seeds cannot sustain that inflammation because they're constantly losing power. The rate at which um, radioactivity loses power is dictated by a property known as its half-life. And every radioisotope has its own individual half-life. So if you take something like radium salt, its half-life is 1600 years but in a seed implant we use iodine 125 seeds and their half-life is 59 days so in other words if I put uh, seeds into a patient on the 1st of January by the time it comes to the 1st of March the seeds are only half as active as they were and by the time you come to the 1st of May they're only half as active as they were on the 1st of March so they lose half of their activity with each half the passing of each half life. In terms of dose, what that means is in the first half life, the patient gets fifty percent of the dose. In the second half life they'll get twenty-five percent. In the third they'll get twelve and a half, in the fourth, six and a quarter, and so forth. So the dose peters out gradually. But it means that over the first two half lives, over the first four months, the patient will have received 75% of the dose prescribed via these radioactive seeds, and that means that in terms of side effects, they generally emerge in the two, three, four, five months following a seed implant, and then begin to dissipate away because the seeds are losing constantly losing power, and they can't sustain the level of inflammation and irritation that they they did when they were put in um, at the time of the implantation. So uh, a seed implant is a very effective way of dealing with prostate cancer. A patient uh, has a two-night admission to hospital. They're discharged home without any catheter. They don't have any pain. They do not require uh, painkillers above and beyond paracetamol. It's very effective for uh, Gleason 3 plus 4 equals 7 disease. There would be some side effects uh, to expect in the months following Uh, a seed implant and they pertain mostly to uh, increased bladder activity but that would be expected to settle after three or four months and patients can resume normal activities after a seed implant uh, the week following their implant. They can go back to work, go back walking, jogging whatever else they want to do. So uh, that's that's, uh, intermediate risk uh, prostate cancer. Then if we move on to the other uh, prostate cancer, which would be high-risk disease. So um, high-risk prostate cancer is a slightly different kettle of fish. So this is a prostate cancer now that is uh, busy or aggressive. Um, so it could be via a PSA that's gone beyond 20 it could be um, Gleason scores that are Gleason four plus four equals eight, four plus five equals nine, five plus four equals nine, or five plus five equals ten. They would all be high-risk prostate cancers. But obviously, the Gleason nine and ten disease would be the most aggressive. And then the MRI. Uh, so the MRI is generally done before any biopsies. But in the pr- in the presence of aggressive prostate cancer it is usually fairly obvious on the MRI, and the uh, radiology report will make reference to PyRADS-5 disease. So when the radiologist says this is a PyRADS-5 abnormality in this prostate that I'm looking at, what they mean is you're going to find a prostate cancer here, I'm telling you, even before you put a needle into it, and it's more likely going to be busy disease. So aggressive prostate cancer generally is a higher psa pyrads 5 on the mri imaging and gleason 8 9 or 10. and the gleason 9s and the gleason 10s would be uh, top notch if you like in terms of aggressiveness now that doesn't mean that these cannot be cured they can so again um surgery is an option um, whether it's a good option is up for debate and that's uh, a subject for discussion between the radiation oncology community and the urologists. Um, I'm from the radiation oncology community and I feel naturally enough that radiation probably is a better option but uh, that doesn't obviate the uh, effectiveness of surgery Um, but it's like a lot of things in prostate cancer there are no direct trials uh, comparing surgery and radiation Um, and that's probably easy to understand because what patient is going to put themselves forward to be randomly assigned to one treatment or another uh, because the interventions are so different and the possible side effects are poles apart so there are no head to head trials and so what we have to compare our individual institutions uh, publishing their results saying here are 500 patients that we treated uh, these were their uh, presenting parameters this is how we treated them and this is how we turned out and you'd have the surgical community doing that and you'd have the radiation oncology community doing that but they're not quite the same population of patients because a lot of the patients in the radiation arm Will be patients such as surgery surgical community have rejected either because they're too old or they're too sick or so forth, reasons X, Y, and Z. So they're not quite apples and apples. Nevertheless, um, surgery is certainly an option in uh, high risk disease. But if a patient comes to me with a high risk disease, Gleason 9, Gleason 10, I would be trying to steer them to, towards a non operative approach. Now, um, in radiation oncology uh, literature, it is absolutely unequivocal that adding hormone treatment to radiation uh, offers a greater chance of cure. So that has been proven through various trials and studies. Um, What is at issue is how long the hormone treatment should be maintained for. Um, And again, that is a subject for debate in the, on- in the radiation oncology community itself. But uh, to get to the specifics of uh, non-operative treatment for high-risk disease, we would generally start patients on hormone treatment, and this is assuming that their rest of their uh, diagnostic exercise, so they would have a bone scan, they would have CT scans of their chest, abdomen, and pelvis, they would have an MRI. And if they have aggressive disease but it's all localized, they would still be treated with the intent of cure. Um, and in that quest, uh, the first protocol would be hormone treatment. So, hormone treatment suppresses patients' testosterone. And testosterone is the fuel for prostate cancer. So, prostate cancer thrives on testosterone. And if you completely suppress it, it switches the prostate cancer off. So their PSA may have been 25 before you start them on hormone treatment. The testosterone is completely suppressed and after a number of weeks or certainly after two months, their PSA will be down to 0.1. So it's a a way of getting immediate control of the situation, switching the prostate cancer off, putting it to sleep. Now hormone treatment will not cure prostate cancer. It will control it. Um, But what it does is it um it stops the prostate cancer in its tracks. It reduces the size of the prostate gland itself, so the target area for the radiation becomes a little smaller. Now, with regard to definitive treatment for that prostate cancer, you could be talking about external beam radiation on its own, or you could be talking about what's uh, HDR brachytherapy in combination with external beam radiation. So in some institutions, uh, they would do external beam radiation alone, which is delivered in the same way that I previously described, attending on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday basis. And the standard treatment would be about 39, 40, 41 visits. There are newer techniques called stereotactic techniques which uh, reduced the number of attendances down to as few as five. Now, if you're delivering your external beam radiation treatment in five uh, attendances, then the premium has to be on accuracy because naturally you're delivering uh, a very significant dose with with each of those five attendances and you do not want to be a millimeter or two millimeters off, because that could have significant impact on the side effect profile that would emerge in the bowel and bladder domain in the months and years after treatment. Uh, For my own part, my preference uh, for aggressive Gleason 9-10 disease is to treat them with hormones, as I've described, uh, hormones up front, and then progress to brachytherapy with what's called HDR technology. HDR stands for high dose rate, and that's self explanatory. It means that you are delivering a brachytherapy treatment, but the dose that you deliver is uh, very aggressive, very robust. So it's a little similar to uh, the radioactive seed implant in that the patient is admitted into the hospital, brought to the theater. Um, the anaesthetist will put an epidural into the needle into the patient's back, and that's going to keep them pain-free from their belly button down. Uh, they'll then have a general anesthetic. And when they're asleep, then I introduce, as before, a, an ultrasound probe into the rectum. Again, I will have my radiology colleague alongside. We'll have all the imaging up on the screen in theater. We'll review the pathology we will uh, gather a whole series of images of the uh, prostate on the ultrasound. And using the ultrasound uh, as a guide, I will implant uh, a whole series of tiny little tubes into the substance of the prostate. Now, these tubes are tiny, um, like the size of the infill of a biro. Um, And I might put in 18 or 20 of these tubes in a particular uh, spatial distribution within the substance of the prostate some of these tubes might even uh, pierce the bladder which lies down on the prostate and I fix those tubes uh, to the outside. Now how I put them in actually I probably should explain is the patient is asleep in theater lying on their back looking up at the ceiling Okay, Then I come along, I put the patient's legs in stirrups and and then there's a little patch of skin between the anus and the back of the scrotum which is called the perineum. So I put these tubes in through the perineum uh, directly into the prostate and it means that they don't go through the rectum. So they go straight through the perineum directly into the prostate gland, but but I might advance some of them so far that they pierce the bladder that lies above the prostate because I need to get those right up to the prostate bladder interface. Now, I fix those tubes in place with a a device called a template so that when I take the patient's legs down from the stirrups, these little tubes don't um, move, they don't budge they stay exactly in position. Then the patient comes out of their uh, slumber, they recover from their general anesthetic, they've got this uh, device called a template in place um, and these tubes are all um, sitting in the prostate gland itself. So that's when the epidural needle comes into its own because that keeps the patient pain-free. The patient then has to be brought down for uh, scans. So scans of the pelvis And those images I use then to generate a radiation plan. So these images will uh, again show me exactly where, where the prostate is. Uh, I'll have put a catheter into the bladder as before. So I can see the urethra uh, as it courses through the prostate gland. I can establish the relationship of one tube to the next. uh, Establish the anatomic relationship of the tubes to the bladder and to the rectum behind. And then with the physics team here, I set about uh, designing a radiation uh, treatment, this BRAC-Y, HDR brachytherapy treatment. Now it differs from the radioactive seed implant because instead of using uh, a, a number of tiny little seeds that are going to stay in the prostate forevermore, we're only going to use one uh, radioactive source that can be made to travel in and out of each individual tube that I've implanted into the prostate. So this one little radioactive source is extremely tiny. It has to be tiny to be able to travel up and down the, the diameter of a tube that's only that's similar to the infill of a biro, but it's extremely powerful. So it's a, it's a 10 Curie source. Um, so the radiation plan that I design dictates where the source goes in, say, tube number one where it is going to stop in tube number one so you may have a number of dwell positions in tube number one and it will um, it will stop in tube number one then come back into its bank be um, exported again into tube number two it will dwell in a number of positions in tube number two as dictated by the radiation plan and in and out and in and out and in and out of each individual tube And the net effect of all of that is to deliver one very robust dose of radiation to the prostate gland. And when the treatment is over, and the treatment might take uh, 15 minutes, something of that order, I take uh, the the template away, the the device um, that holds the tubes in place. I take out all of these treatment tubes. And the only thing that's left in place then is the urinary catheter. Now, the urinary catheter has to stay in place because, you will recall, some of those little treatment tubes I've advanced through the bladder wall, and when I take them out, the patient could bleed into the bladder. And if the patient bleeds into the bladder, and they don't have a, a catheter in place, that blood would just collect in the urine and form a clot, and it would settle down over the opening of the bladder, like a manhole cover, and the... Urine would just build up behind it and the patient wouldn't be able to piddle. So the urinary catheter has to be left in place until such time as the urine runs clear of blood. That could be the day following the procedure or rarely the day following that again. So generally, patients come in on a Tuesday, they're in theater on Wednesday, I do the procedure in theater, they have their treatment on Wednesday afternoon, and then Uh, Generally speaking, the catheter would come out on Thursday, and once the catheter comes out and the patient is piddling freely on their own, without any difficulty, they can head away home. Now that delivers uh, a very significant dose uh, of radiation to the prostate, which would put the frighteners on any Gleason 9 or Gleason 10 disease. Um, But it's still not enough to eradicate the tumor completely, so we have to complement that treatment with a a shortened course of external beam radiation. So again, the patient will attend on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday basis. Um, But instead of coming for 39 or 40 visits, uh, they will now come for 25. So a lower dose delivered uh, with external beam radiation than normally would apply if you were using external beam on its own. But the combination of the HDR brachytherapy and uh, 25 external beam radiation treatments is certainly uh, enough to eradicate Gleason 9 and Gleason 10 disease out of the prostate. Now That's, uh, that's a tried and trusted treatment uh, that's been in use in this institution uh, for well over a decade and uh, has proven very successful. Now the patients of course will get uh, some side effects. We'd expect them to get side effects as they navigate their way through that treatment program. So you'll get side effects from uh, the hormone treatment because the hormone treatment is suppressing the testosterone. uh, That creates a a hormonal imbalance. Um, So that imbalance in the hormonal yin and yang is is expressed as side effects which the patients will report. And they are generally sweats and flushing, uh, a bit of weight gain, Occasional patient might get a little bit of breast tenderness. Patients might get some fatigue. Um, An occasional patient on hormone treatment might get some joint trouble. And then small print would be um, very remote risk of upsetting the blood sugars. If they had any propensity to develop um, diabetes in the future, it might accelerate that. And even finer print would be possible impact on the cardiovascular system. But the big ticket items for hormone treatment would be sweats and flushing, uh, weight gain, um, maybe some fatigue. And obviously testosterone is reduced, so potency, the ability to get erections or libido, any interest in that department, it takes a complete backseat. Uh, that might reassert itself once uh, the hormone treatment is is discontinued, uh, but that tends to be uh, age-related. So the younger patients uh, might uh, recover potency. Older patients probably would not, and it would be um, unexpected that they would, particularly if you're 3 score and 10 or beyond. So uh, with regard to external beam and HDR brachytherapy, the side effects... Patients could expect, again, would be some fatigue, maybe some urethral irritation. So bladder symptoms like getting up at night more often than they used. uh, Some daytime frequency, uh, maybe a bit of urgency and stinging. Um, And again, you'd expect those things to subside uh, once they come out the other side of the external beam radiation. They would probably persist for a number of weeks and months, and they may require medication, but you would expect them to subside, and there's practically, again, practically zero risk of incontinence. So external beam radiation combined with with HDR, brachytherapy, and hormones is a very successful treatment uh, for high-risk prostate cancer, uh, Gleason 9, Gleason 10. So we've looked at our own um, data here, Uh, Out to ten years, and um, it looks like we have control, biochemical control. What's called biochemical relapse-free survival. So, in other words, patients out to ten years, their PSA has remained suppressed, uh, which is a surrogate for disease control. It has remained suppressed in uh, up to seventy-seven percent of patients, ten years out from the treatment that I've just described. So even if patients have aggressive prostate cancer, it it doesn't mean that they can't be cured and can't get long-term control. Uh, they certainly can. And I think radiation treatment of whatever hue, whether it's external beam on its own or whether it's uh, brachytherapy, as I've described, has an important role to play in the management of uh, prostate cancer.
0: Brilliant. Is there ever a case where like, a patient is... Radioactive, and they can't like they have to keep their distance from people or anything like that. So,
1: a radioactive seed implant that uh, that we described earlier for the intermediate risk disease mm. uh, Gleason three plus four equals seven. Um, those seeds are radioactive. Generally speaking, I put in uh, on average about sixty or seventy seeds into a prostate. So the reason you have to put in so many seeds is because the distance that the radiation travels, the distance from each seed is very shallow so i could do a seed implant on a patient here on a wednesday and they can go home on the bus on thursday and be sitting beside a pregnant uh, passenger on the bus and they would be of absolutely no danger to them so there are precautions that we give um, patients when they have a radioactive seed implant such as um they wouldn't sit um newborns or, mm. or small babies up on their lap mm. watching bosco for an hour on television <laughs> because the, the the baby would be sitting down on top of their yeah. prostate mm. but they can be in the same room they'd be in the same car they can share a table share the couch and they're of no danger to them
0: perfect is there any risk of any of the seeds coming out when you pass urine or anything like that
1: so uh, again if a patient uh, has had a seed implant um, extruding a seed either in the urine or in the semen would be extremely rare, extremely rare. Uh, we do nevertheless uh, say to patients, if they're going to be intimate with their partner, um, then for that intimacy, they should wear a condom. You know, for a, maybe, And that, might, that advice might pertain for a month or six weeks after their seed implant. After that, the seeds are completely embedded and won't budge. But it, it would be an extremely rare event in any case.
0: Would there be any risk? So, say, for example, if like you had the the seeds are implanted, and you like, can you not start a family or anything for a certain amount of time afterwards? Uh, or is there no, anything?
1: No. no no um So after a seed implant, um, like it's it's radiation treatment. It's like external yeah. beam radiation, except you're just putting the radiation into the prostate. So it will have an an effect on the prostate function. Yeah. So the prostate and the seminal vesicles, which are two small, little, tiny little glands that sit on top of the prostate. So their job, really in life, is to uh, produce seminal fluid. So at or excuse me, at orgasm, the sperm come flying up from the testicles. Mm. They come into the urethra through uh, tiny little uh, channels called the ejaculatory ducts. Mm-hmm. And then the prostate and seminal vesicles produce the seminal fluid, which is meant to carry the sperm forward to where the good Lord designed <laughs> it should go. <laughs> and uh, But if a patient has had external beam radiation or a radioactive seed implant, the ability of the prostate gland-seminal vesicle complex to produce seminal fluid is is greatly reduced. Okay. So commonly, patients might, after a seed implant, continue to be able to get erections without any difficulty but the amount of ejaculate that to produce would completely diminish uh, to the point that they might have no ejaculate Mm. or they might even get a little bit of blood in the ejaculate which is of no consequence except to give the patient a fright but it's of no consequence so um, the other thing about about uh, a, a direct testimonial of patients coming back to see me after a seed implant is they might come and say they have no trouble getting erections but the whole sensation of gar- orgasm mm. has changed for them from something that was previously very pleasurable to something that's now b- bordering on a little bit of discomfort yeah, okay. so there are there are changes in that whole domain mm-hmm. uh, that that probably are not well described in any book yeah. or any literature but direct testimonial from patients coming back would suggest that uh, there are differences and things so, are certainly not the same as they were before. Mm-hmm. So they can continue to get erections, mm-hmm. but um, but the ejaculate might be reduced mm-hmm. to very little or nothing, or they might even get a little bit of blood in the ejaculate.
0: Okay, that's good to know, just we so they know, We have a follow-up yeah. episode coming up soon with um, a GP who's gonna cover like erectile dysfunction and mm-hmm. that in a little bit more detail. So yeah. Yeah. Um, that might be good follow-on. Yeah, yeah, episode. yeah, that would be so. great. Yeah, definitely. Um. There. Oh, yeah. There was one. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you when you were talking about um, in the intermediate phase, the uh, brachytherapy and the external beam. How would you decide which one you, which one you give?
1: So, uh, so seed implantation is a super treatment because it's it's um, it's very quick. You Mm. know, the patients come in on Tuesday seed implant Wednesday home on Thursday without any catheter mm. or any painkillers so it's you'd say where's the catch yeah. um, so th- how you decide is number one the uh, Gleason score has yeah. to be 3 plus 4 equals 7 yeah. uh, or if they have a lot of Gleason 3 plus 3 equals 6 mm. you know if they have uh, 12 biopsies and you have 8 with Gleason 6 Mm. that's probably not a prostate cancer that's going to stay still so that would probably merit treatment but uh, so the the uh, gleason score and the psa you would like the psa to be in double digit or to be less than double digits that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that i don't do seed implants on patients with a psa of 12 or 13 or 14 i would Mm. if they had your biopsies showing gleason three plus four in three or four biopsies so not rampaging disease mm. um, but the other important issue in terms of selection is bladder function mm. so if the patient is not bothered by getting up at night for uh, to pee they don't have a a, a sense of urgency about pidlin. um they don't have a lot of daytime frequency um, and then they'd certainly be candidates for a seed implant whereas okay. so they, they need to be more or less piddling like a boy yeah. uh for them to qualify mm-hmm. uh, because if you if you if i do a seed implant on somebody who has a lot of urinary urgency so mm. if they if they're watching a match and they can't wait till half time yeah. to go for a pee yeah. that's a you know that's a red flag Good. because if yeah. you put seeds into a patient with that type of history mm that sense of urgency becomes much more pronounced and magnified. Yeah. So you might well cure their prostate cancer, but yeah. the patient might be very cross with me because yeah. now their bladder is uh, dictating uh, their quality of life, Fair. their bladder activity. So, so bladder function is an important uh, uh, selection criterion for uh, choosing patients for whom a seed implant is an appropriate treatment.
0: And um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was radium 223 do you mind if we chat about that a bit because we're just seeing it a little bit more upstairs. yeah
1: so radium 223 is at the at the other end of, of the disease so in other words uh, patients uh, prostate cancer has progressed mm. um, so either they've had they've got a widespread disease that has um, spread into their bones or um, and maybe that's their first presentation that's that's gotten less and less common now in the psa era or they've had primary treatment many years ago but they're in spite of that their disease has progressed so uh, radium-223 is an injection Mm. excuse me so it's a radioactive material that's injected into the vein and it's appropriate for patients who have um, disease spread into their bones, Mm. but don't have disease uh, widespread anywhere else. In other words, they don't have prostate cancer in their lungs or their liver Mm. or in their lymph nodes uh, but it's all primarily in in bone Mm. and prostate cancer sometimes will do that. It has a predilection uh, to settling in bone when it wants to move away from the prostate gland. So the first uh, treatment line of treatment would be hormone treatment Mm. but uh, as we said earlier in the podcast hormone treatment doesn't cure prostate cancer it will control it Mm. and it may control it for many years but prostate cancer cells are clever and they'll chicane around the controls that uh hormone treatment are, are exerting on it so hormone treatment can control uh, prostate cancer for many years um but at some point you know, the, the disease will find a way uh out of those handcuffs and it'll begin to progress and it's in that type of setting uh, that radium 223 uh, would be an appropriate treatment. So if you've got disease progression, it's only in bone. Mm. Uh, radium-223 is a, a very good treatment because radium-223 selectively goes to bone. Okay. So it's an injection that's delivered uh, once a month. Mm. Uh, it only takes a minute to inject it. Mm. It's a radioactive material. There are precautions around the whole injection process because it's a liquid you don't want it to spill it's radioactive but it's very well tolerated um, an occasional patient can get a little bit of uh, bowel upset a little bit of looseness with it and because it's bone seeking it can have an effect on the bone marrow mm. uh, so it can drop your the patient's platelets in particular mm. so the blood as you know has got red cells, white cells, platelets platelets are the ones that uh, you need for clotting Um, and and a fall in the platelets is known as thrombocytopenia so you can get thrombocytopenia with radium 223 to the point that you might have to discontinue treatment Mm. but if the patient's bone marrow withstands it um, it is a very good treatment and the general course of treatment would be once a month Mm. this uh, minute injection once a month over six consecutive months okay
0: brilliant and their calcium is that effective as well because of the uh, not so much no, no.
1: and the no. psa can is not a great marker okay. so their psa might be you know very high to begin with and you start them on radium 223 and the psa goes haywire mm. um, it doesn't mean that the, the treatment isn't working okay uh, so other markers are better like uh, alkaline phosphatase mm-hmm. uh, or CEA or LDH. Uh, so there are better markers to follow uh, the efficacy of the treatment than the PSA. So yeah. sometimes patients get hung up a little bit on PSA, yeah, yeah. but it's actually a, 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 a not a good marker uh, to follow when a patient is on radium-223 treatment.
0: That's good to know. Perfect, thanks a million. I are think we've covered everything. What do you think? Anything well, I hope know? so. Yeah. I, 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 Brilliant.
1: I'd love if there was an opportunity for for uh, the listenership to ask questions. I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I hope they have a better understanding of uh, of why we make the decisions we make. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it's it's a uh, uh, medicine used to be uh, a paternalistic pursuit where the where the doctor said this is what you're having. Yeah. But now it's a much more um, autonomous um, interaction, and and but you can only. You can, uh, you can only You have to equip the, a patient with enough information to allow them yeah. uh, to understand all the various nuances of the different treatments, so that they can be comfortable in the choices that that are being made, and definitely. that they are invested in the whole uh, treatment choice process.
0: Yeah, definitely makes more sense now for me as well because i was saying to you earlier we've no experience in radiation at all so well we
1: I, I know what you're like you were up in the oncology day ward on mm. the third floor i'm down here in, <laughs> in radiotherapy in the bunkers uh, so only our paths only cross when i have to go up and see a patient yeah. in your domain um but you know we we're, we're, we're all doing our best for patients and yeah. and it's a joy to be involved in their care
0: yeah brilliant. thank you so much i really appreciate it you're welcome thanks for listening to the answers for cancers podcast please share this podcast with anybody who you think it might help also if you can like and subscribe it lets people know we're here you can alternatively contact us on instagram at the answers for cancers underscore podcast and if you have any questions on anything that we discussed today please email us at the answers for cancers podcast at gmail.com or you can dm us on instagram